Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Father had two sons. One was a pessimist, and of course the other was an optimist. He decided to really try those sons out just to see how entrenched they were in their beliefs and in their natures. So he filled the pessimist's room with toys. He filled the optimist's room with dog food. Well, he went into the pessimist's room to find him sitting dejectedly on the floor. Well, what's wrong, boy? Well, his son said, hey, look at these toys. Somebody's going to have to put them all together. Somebody's going to have to read all the manuals. And then once we get them all together, all the kids in the neighborhood are going to come over. Well, then he went in to see his optimist son and found him just having a ball, just having a blast digging around in all the dog food. Son, what are you doing? His son said, well, I figured with all that dog food, there had to be a puppy somewhere. (laughs) Attitude. A mindset. So very important. You know that, and I know that, and sometimes we hear this idea out there that it's all about a positive mental attitude. I think there's something more important than a positive mental attitude. I think that's a Jesus mindset. What was his mindset? I mean, if I consistently had more of the mindset of Jesus, I'm just really thinking that there's some things that might be changing in my life. This morning, we're going to look at the mindset of Christ and really how to gain it in our lives and This week, we'll cover part one of that, and then next week, we'll cover the next part. Where will I be this morning? Well, I'll be in the book of Philippians as we continue this jailhouse journal for the joyous advancement of the gospel. I'll be in Philippians chapter 2, and one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, as we're talking about the mindset of Jesus, kind of where am I going today? If I could summarize it up in a sentence for you, it would be this that I can have Jesus' mindset when my mind is set on Jesus. Think about that. I can have the mindset of Christ when my mind is set on Christ. Now, why is this important? Why would we take the time to kind of go through this? Well, it's continuing with Paul's joyous advance of the gospel. So think about this. When you and I collectively together as a church have the mindset of Jesus, we are a unified body. When we're a unified body, it seems to be that when Paul brings us up, that then the unified body is a joyous body. And a joyous body always shares the gospel. That's Paul's point. So kind of how do we get to sharing the gospel? We've got to get joy. Well, how do we get joy? We get that through unity. Our text this morning, I need you to know, is probably one of the four great Christological texts in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, we see that Jesus is the God of incarnation. In Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, we see that Jesus is the God of creation. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we see that Jesus is the God of revelation. But here this morning, in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, we will see that Jesus is the God of humiliation. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 appears to be an early hymn or a poetic creed. Perhaps it was used liturgically in ancient worship. Some proposed that it was written by an early Jewish community in Jerusalem and sung 
during the Lord's Supper. Well, how appropriate for us today. So how is it that I have the mindset of Jesus? Well, our text this morning is going to give us two truths. We'll cover one this week and again another one next week. So I wonder if you would stand for me as we read this holy description of our one and only, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll be in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Paul says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Today, Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes to get a bigger picture of just really who you are. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here's the first thing we're kind of going to look at today, but before we kind of jump in, I need you to understand a couple of things. The gift of the pastor is one that has to have the gift of pastoring and preaching and teaching. So if you like the way that I preach, which I know many of you do, and I'm so thankful that today I take on more of a teaching role. So if you're that kind of person who likes the more of the teaching aspect, today will make a little bit more, maybe a little more savvy for you. So you kind of got to understand that today is going to be a little bit less of my yeah, 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 and more of let's just be in awe of who Jesus is. Okay, so think about this. Here's the first thing. I can walk like Christ in humility. If I'm going to have his mindset, I need to know that I can walk like Christ. I can do this in humility. How how do we kind of go about that? Well, look there in verse 5. He says something interesting here. If you'll turn your eyes to the Scripture. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Jesus. Well, what is that attitude? Which one of deep humility? Jesus Christ was completely humble. That was his mindset. It was always Humility, And we are called to this because he says that this is what we're called to do. We're supposed to have this in ourselves. Well, okay, Paul, thanks. But how do we do that? Well, first of all, look, we consider his selfless denial. We consider his selfless denial. That would be there. Verse 6 says he existed in the form of God. Is that what your Bible says? Existed in the form of God. Now, you need to know, and, and I'm not trying to impress you, but If we were studying this and being consistent with kind of what we see happening, we would expect the word existed to be a different word here. But it's not what we would expect. It's a different word. And why does that matter? Because it means this, and I won't bore you with the tenses and all that kind of stuff that you don't necessarily want to know, but you probably should know, is this. He uses a form of the verb that means this, that Jesus Christ has always been and always continues to be God. Before the incarnation, in other words, and after it, Jesus was God. He was deity before his humanity, but yet he was also deity after his humanity. He existed in the form of God. These words contain some very doctrinal issues that we need to cover. And I borrow from one of my colleagues, Tony Morata here. When Paul uses this phrase, he touches both on the preexistence of Jesus 
as well and at the same time the divine nature of Jesus. You see, the divinity of Jesus is expressed in the second half of the verse that he did not consider equality with God as something to be used for advantage. Well, see, we see here that John the Baptist, John the, the, the disciple says this, Jesus was calling God his own father in John chapter 5, verse 18, making himself equal with God. Now, other biblical writers highlight Jesus' preexistence in many different passages, John 1 and John 8, John 17, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, as we've alluded to. But see, there was never a time, this is what you've got to understand, there was never a time when Jesus didn't exist. Jesus didn't just show up at Christmas, folks. He's always been around. There was never a time when Jesus didn't exist. He had no point of origin. You've got to know some people might knock on your door selling you some different version of Kool-Aid. But I'm here today to tell you he had no point of origin. He is and always has been the Alpha and the Omega. John says he was with God in the beginning. And everything was created through him. And all apart from him, nothing was created that was created. Jesus Christ is the creator. He wasn't created, amen. Now, we differ from many different cults and many different religions on this one fundamental point. Regarding his divine nature, Paul says he existed in the form of God. Now, what he's not saying is this. He's not saying that Jesus just appeared as God. He's saying that Jesus continues being the very nature and essence of God. It uses the word morphe, the word for form. This doesn't speak of an external appearance or outward shape, but of the essential attributes and the inner nature of Jesus. His essential nature and his attributes are God. Paul uses the same word to describe about the very nature of who Jesus was when he describes that he's also a slave. So what we have here is that Jesus is fully human, and fully divine. A lot of people like to say it this way. He's 100% God, but yet also 100% man. Now, church history is littered with debates over the nature of Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's why there are some denominations that kind of float around selling you a different version of Jesus. When we read the famous Council of Nicaea that took place in AD 325, we begin to see what began to shake out. Arius believed that Jesus was the first and greatest created being. But Athanasius won the day, defending the biblical position that Jesus is fully God, being of this very same essence of the Father. Today, we still confess this magnificent creed adopted by that council when we read these words. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Now, indeed, there have been many alternative positions through the years, and I want you to understand, I'm not trying to impress you with knowledge. I'm trying to help you understand when the cults come knocking on your door, you need to understand which version of Jesus they're trying to sell you. Because Ebionism denies the very divine nature of Jesus. Arianism denies the fullness of the deity of Jesus. Docetism denies the humanity of Jesus. Apollinarianism denies the full humanity of Jesus. Neostorianism denied the unity of the natures between Jesus and being God in one person. Eutychianism denied the distinction of those natures. So in AD 451, the, the leaders in Chalcedon write a creed, both affirming Jesus' full humanity and his full deity, united in one person. In doing so, they rejected all six of the Christological heresies that we find continue to knock on our door. 
in every generation, listen to me, how important this is, you and I must contend for the biblical worldview about who Jesus is. So in our culture today, we hear things like this. Well, Jesus was a great prophet. He was a a really good man. He was a fine example. It's really the idea of Jesus that only matters. But like Athanasius, we must boldly defend the glory of Jesus. We have to teach our children the things of Jesus. In other words, in the spirit of Deuteronomy 6, as we sit down, as we walk, as we lie down, as we teach our kids, it must be about who Jesus really is. He's both God and he's both man. You see, as Dr. Aiken says, being in the form of God emphasizes Christ's continuous and constant existence in the very nature or essence of God. Contrary to the ancient heretic areas or modern day deniers, there was never a time when Jesus was not. Jesus was not simply, as some would have you believe, a very God-intoxicated man. In his person, in his essence, his very beingness, he was and is God. In other words... It's been said this, whatever it is that makes God, God, Jesus is. He says in verse six, though, he says, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God. Well, that's synonymous with the preceding phrase, form of God. In repeating the declaration of Christ's true nature and essence, Paul emphasizes the absolute and incontestable reality. Now, pay attention here. Because in your Bible, it says, did not require equality with God. In the original language, it's in the plural. So what we would see here is it did not regard equalities with God. Well, what is he talking about there? He's probably talking to every aspect of Jesus' deity is the same as God. Now, you and I know this word equality, but you might not have known that you knew it because it's the word that we get words like isosceles from. You know that an isosceles triangle has two equal sides. You know that isomers are chemicals that may be different in certain properties and structure, but they're identical in atomic weight. In becoming a man, Jesus did not in any way forfeit or diminish his absolute equality with God. That's why we see the word iso there. Now let's look a little bit further and we'll begin to see the humble mindset of Christ and just how great his denials were in his humility because it says there, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Your version of the Bible might say he did not consider it robbery. Aiken says this, this phrase looks back to the expression being in the form of God. And it means that his equal status and privileges with God were not things which he violently sought to seize or believe he must forcibly retain. The word there for grasping, or maybe your version says robbery, can mean a couple of things. It can mean that I rob something in the active sense, where I would go in and and perform a bank robbery. I would do it actively. Or it could mean a thing gained through robbery in the passive sense. In other words, something was robbed and I kind of enjoyed it. (laughs) The idea seems to be that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God by the very nature of his being, So equality with God was not something he had to forcibly take as if he didn't possess it or something he had to put forth as if he could ever lose it. F.F. Bruce says it this way, there's no question of Christ trying to snatch or seize equality with God. That was already his because he's always been God. Neither is there any question of his trying to retain it by force. The point is rather that he did not treat equality with God as an excuse for self-assertion. 
On the contrary, Jesus treated equality with God as an opportunity to renounce every privilege that might have occurred to him or that he could have enjoyed for himself. Now, you need to understand that numerous students of the Scripture here see a direct contrast, a contrast between the first Adam, Adam, and the last Adam, Jesus, here, because this is very important to understand theologically, and I don't want you to miss this. You see, Christ, although he was God, didn't grasp at sovereignty, but rather took a hold of being a servant. Adam was humanity seeking deity. Christ was deity seeking humanity. Jesus didn't grasp, he gave. He did not climb, he condescended. Christ enjoyed true equality with God, but refused to derive any advantage from it in becoming man, whereas Adam, made in the image of God, snatched at a false and illusory equality. Christ achieved universal lordship through his renunciation, but Adam forfeited his earthly lordship through his taking. Think about this just a little more deeply with me as we continue to flesh this out. Adam was made in God's image. Jesus made Adam in his image. Adam thought it was something to be grasped to be like God. Jesus thought it wasn't something to be grasped, even though he was God. Adam wanted to be like God, but yet Jesus took on the likeness of man. Adam aspired to a reputation. Jesus made himself of no reputation. Adam wanted to exalt himself. Jesus emptied himself. Adam was discontent, discontent being God's servant, but yet Jesus came to be a servant. Adam arrogantly rejected God's word in sinful disobedience, but Jesus humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Adam was found in fashion as a man and disobeyed unto death, but Jesus found fashion as a man, humbled himself, and became obedient to death. Adam succumbed to temptation. Jesus overcame it. Adam brought the curse on the world. Jesus took on the curse for the world. Adam was condemned, but Jesus was exalted. So in other words, we ask ourselves this question, how is it that I can go from being a grasper to being a giver? The reason I include this here is because you and I need the gospel. You and I need the, the last Adam, Jesus, and through his perfect life and his atoning death, he gives you and I forgiveness and new life and empowers us now to live like him in humility. You see, the idea of not considering his equality with God a thing to be grasped highlights the astonishing giving nature of Jesus. He did not consider being God grounds for getting, but for giving. And in the context, like here in Philippians, he encourages the church to follow the example of Jesus' service in relationships with one another. In other words, Jesus could have clutched his rights. He could have held on to his blessings. He could have held on to his benefits as the king of glory. But Jesus lived open-handedly, showing us what benevolent generosity and service look like. So let me ask you, do you have a hard time letting go of things you think that belong to you? Do you find it hard to relinquish your rights to be mad at someone? See, if we apply Jesus' mindset here to marriage and to other relationships, imagine what life would be like. See, here Jesus shows me what it's like to live. This is the Jesus mindset. I can walk Christ in humility if I just consider his selfless denial. But then I can walk like him if I consider his selfless duality. 
His selfless duality, because there in verse 7, Paul says this, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. The Bible says that he emptied himself. Another version says that he made himself nothing. For those of you who would like for me to speak a little bit, uh, maybe theologically, this is called the canonic theory of Jesus. This is where Jesus empties himself. Christ refused to hold on to his divine rights and prerogatives. Listen to me. Jesus Christ veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. Sometimes we like to say it this way. Pay attention. Remaining all that he was, Jesus became what he was not. He added humanity. He did not subtract his deity. The wedding of the two natures is permanent. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person forever. You see, in humility, Jesus continued to not cling to his divine prerogatives. Instead, he emptied himself. Now pay attention because the word there in verse 7 before emptied himself is the contraction but, B-U-T. In Greek, it means a stark contrast. In other words, he was God, but something else happened. And although he was absolutely full of deity, he emptied himself of all its prerogatives. It means to empty, uh, to empty completely. Jesus emptied himself completely of every advantage and privilege that he would use or could use to do anything on his own behalf. He who created everything forsook everything to serve you and me. Now, it must be in mind that, that Jesus emptied himself of only certain aspects or prerogatives of his deity, not of deity itself. So think about this. Jesus was never anything and will never be anything but fully and eternally God, as Paul was careful to state in that previous verse. But all four Gospels do, do, make it clear that Jesus didn't give up his divine power to perform miracles. Jesus didn't give up his authority to forgive sins or to know the hearts and minds of people. Had Jesus stopped being God, which is an impossibility, he could not have died for the sins of the world. He would have remained on that cross and died in a grave never to raise again. But we have to ask ourselves this question. If Jesus emptied himself, what did he then empty himself of? Well, thank you for asking. I think we should answer that. I borrow from John MacArthur here in summary fashion. Jesus, it says there, when he emptied himself, he temporarily divested himself of divine glory. Shortly before his arrest, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, glorify me together with yourself, watch this, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see, the Son of God forsook the worship of saints and angels in heaven and submitted himself to misunderstanding, denials, unbelief, false accusations, and every sort of reviling and persecution by sinful men. He gave up all the shining brilliance of heaven to suffer an agonizing death on a cross. It was not that he forfeited his divine glory, but watch, as we've said previously, he veiled it. In other words, he, keep it, he kept it hidden to humanity, at least from our point. Glimpses of it could be seen in his miracles, in his gracious words, in his humble attitude that, that Paul calls us here. It can ultimately be seen, of course, in the cross. But it was briefly and partially even manifested to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. But then again, it wasn't witnessed until after his resurrection and ascension. But then, even then, it was only revealed to those who really belonged to him. So he emptied himself of that divine glory, but then he also emptied himself of independent divine authority. 
You see, the operation of the Trinity is, of course, a great mystery. And within the Godhead, there's perfect harmony and agreement in every possible way to every possible degree. Jesus stated his full equality with the Father when he declared in John 10 that I and the Father are one. Yet, just as clearly during his own incarnation, he said this, I can do nothing by my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus said in John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. In the garden, right before his arrest, Jesus asked, hey, Father, is any way this cup can pass from me? But yet he followed that request with, yet not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus set aside the voluntary use of his divine authority and he submitted himself to his father. But thirdly, Jesus emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of some of his divine attributes. And so in other words, what I mean by that is Jesus didn't stop being omniscient. He didn't stop being omnipresent or omnipotent. That means to know all things and to be everywhere and to understand and have the power to do all things. But he chose not to do what? He chose not to fully exercise those attributes while here on earth. He did exercise some of them partially and selectively. I mean, think about it. When, when Jesus met Nathaniel, he used his omniscience and said, here is an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Why? Because Jesus said he didn't need to testify anything about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. And through his omnipresence, he knew where Nathanael was even before he saw him. Yet he confessed that at the same time, Jesus said, hey, of the time of the return of the Son of Man, the angels in heaven, nor even the Son of the Man know that. So Jesus selectively used those at times. Jesus also emptied himself of his eternal riches. It says, for your sake, he became poor. Paul says that through his poverty, we might become rich. And there's many people falsely that state that they interpret this as a reference to Jesus's economic condition. Listen to me. The point is, you've got to understand this. The point is not that Christ gave up earth's riches, but that he gave up heaven's riches. As noted, he forsake the, he forsook the adoration, the worship, the service of angels. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself up. What else did he give himself up? Well, temporarily of his face-to-face intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. The full divine plan of redemption, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on my behalf so that I might become the righteousness of God. That was the Father's will, which Jesus came to fulfill and pray would be done. But even then, Jesus on the cross cries out, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what brought Jesus great agony in the garden is that he temporarily set aside that with his father. Christians cannot obviously empty themselves to the degree that the Lord emptied himself. Believers have infinitely less to empty themselves of. But believers are obligated to follow the Lord's example by emptying ourselves of anything that would what, hinder us from loving him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But listen to me, just as Jesus did not cease to be God when he emptied himself, neither do Christians cease to be Christians when we empty ourselves. This is the thing that makes us please the Father. So I guess maybe I have to ask the question, what rights and equalities might the Lord be asking you to give up for the sake of others? And yes, I have to go there. During this COVID stuff, a lot of people claim a lot of rights. I just, I'm curious, how does this apply? to the conversation. Just wondering, could we give up some things for the sake of others? 
Brian Chapel illustrates the idea of Jesus emptying himself by telling a story of an African missionary. I'll paraphrase it here. In Africa, there was this chief, and in that particular part, the chief was the strongest man in the village. As a chief, he wore this very large headdress and had ceremonial robes. But one day, a man carrying water out of a shaft of a deep well fell and broke his leg, and he lay helpless at the bottom of the well. To get down to the bottom, one would have to climb down into the well and then, what, put the person there on top of them and climb back out. But no one could do that. So the chief was summoned. When the chief looked and saw the plight of man, he laid aside his headdress and he took off his robe and he climbed down into the bottom. He put the man on himself and he brought him out to safety. Now listen to me. That chief did what no other man could do. And this is exactly what Jesus has done. He came to rescue us and he laid aside his heavenly glory. He laid aside his crown, if you will, and he got down into the pit and he took us upon himself and he rose, what, to bring us to life. Listen to me, you see, although Jesus was God, he had a humble mindset and he emptied himself for the sake of others. But then Paul says this, he says he emptied himself, he took on the form of a bondservant. Now, there's this idea that there's emptying by addition. The son did not surrender his deity, he added humanity. But we have to ask ourselves this question, what kind of humanity did he put on? Well, Jesus didn't take on the idea of being a sovereign human, he took on the idea of being a servant human. In other words, Jesus didn't get a crown, he got a cross. And Jesus took on the nature of being a slave. In great humility, Jesus forsook the full rights of lordship by taking the form of a bondservant. Do you see it there? The form of a bondservant. Jesus willingly took upon himself the form, that's the same word it said existed, exists in the form of God, now he exists as the form of a bondservant. Just as surely as he existed in the form of God, he now exists in the form of a bondservant. But watch this. Jesus didn't actually just kind of say, hey, I'm just going to put on slaves' clothing and kind of pretend to be a slave. No, Jesus actually became a slave in its fullest sense. You see, a bondservant owned, owned nothing. They didn't really own the clothes on their back. And everything that a, that a bondservant had belonged to his master. Think about this. Jesus owned no land. He had no house. He had no gold or jewels. He had no business, no boat, no horse. Jesus even had to borrow a donkey when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He had to borrow a room to take the, the Last Supper. He was even buried in a borrowed tomb. He refused any property, any advantages, any special service to himself. And relative to his glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords willingly became the servant of servants. The one who was in the beginning with God and who through all things came into being claimed nothing that he owned as his own. Among other things, a bondservant was required to carry out other people's burdens. And as a supreme servant, Jesus carried the burden that no other man would carry, the sin burden that we have for any who would believe. As Isaiah 53 tells us, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Jesus. He came to do the Father's will and to serve the needs of his people in his Father's name. Jesus completely waived his rights as the son of God and became what? The servant of God. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give him life, his life a ransom for many. And I want you to know this, through his provision of salvation, Jesus served others more completely than anyone else who's been a servant ever before. I want you to know this today. I want you to hear this. Jesus truly left an example when he washed people's feet. and He says, you should do this 
as I have done it unto you. That's the kind of man that Jesus was. You see this denial? Although he's God, he completely continues to deny himself. He denies himself being all that he is, but in his duality, being God and being man, he sets it aside to serve other people. And you and I can walk with Christ in that kind of humility. But then he goes on to say this, and being made in the likeness of men. God made him so by the miraculous conception. Now, this word here in the likeness of men is not the same word that we would see as the word form. This refers to that which is made like something else, not just in appearance, but in reality. You see, what we need to know here is Jesus Christ was not a clone. He was not disguised as an alien. He wasn't some mere facsimile of a man. He became exactly like every other human being, having the attributes of humanity, a genuine man among men. As a matter of fact, he was so much a man that he had to prove that he was really God. You've got to think about that. Jesus, had he not revealed who he really was, people would have just assumed that he was a man. And despite all these countless miracles, his enemies rejected his deity out of hand. They even called him the lowest kind of man, a blasphemer. But we need to understand this. In the incarnation, Jesus took in himself the frailties, limitations, problems, and suffering that would heritage of the fall. He didn't become a man like pre-fall. He became a man like after the fall. And what we know here is that you know this as well as I know. Jesus became hungry. Jesus became thirsty. Jesus had wants and desires just like we do. He needed sleep, all those kind of things. But yet he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet he was without sin. And I need you to know today that although Jesus forgave sins, he never acknowledged the propriety of being worshipped as the Son of God. In other words, in the sense, he didn't ask for any special privileges because he was God. He simply came to serve in the likeness of man. But then in verse 8, it says this, being found in appearance as a man. Well, that's interesting because now we have yet another word. This advances the truth that he was made in the likeness of men, But having been made a true human by divine power through the virgin conception, Christ was found as recognized as a man by those who what observed him. Now, this word here for made as the uh, appearance as a man is the word we get our word scheme from. It's unlike the other words for form and likeness. So this means not an actuality in a sense, because he's already proven that Jesus came in actuality as a man. But now Paul says this, in humility, in humility, Jesus appeared to only be a man. Well, what is he talking about here? Well, Isaiah 53 looms in the background here. Because Isaiah 53 says of the Messiah that he was despised and forsaken of men. A man was of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from men hide their face, he, did, he was despised and we did not esteem him. John wrote, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down out of heaven? Sadly, John says, not even his brothers were believing in him. Some of the religious unbelieving Jews said, hey, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. And then they went on to say, You, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Blasphemy. Still others accuse him of what? Being demon-possessed. You see, you need to understand. Jesus, although he was God and he was man and he was a servant man, he was also the man who wasn't even recognized really as being a worthy man. Truly, Jesus was selfless in his duality. 
The God man, the humble God servant man. John Bunyan has Mr. Greatheart say in part two of the Pilgrim's Progress, he of whom I am now to speak is one that has not his fellow. He has two natures in one person, plain to be distinguished, but impossible to be divided. Think about this. If we considered his selfless denial of although we have certain rights and we were just to set those aside, and the incredible humility it took is the form of a servant, I think we would have some changes to make in our lives. Because listen to me, have you heard the Lord speaking to your heart? I mean, are there things in your life right now that you need to set aside? Are there some things in your world right now that you need to empty yourself of, some rights that you need to forsake, a reputation you need to set on hold because of Jesus, a servant's heart that you might need to embrace to minister for the sake of others, knowing that it will cost you dearly? See, I can walk like Jesus in humility, but I have to have his mindset. That means I have selfless denial and a selfless duality. But then thirdly and lastly, he says, consider his selfless death. Consider his selfless death. In verse 8, Paul says this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did you see that there? Christ's whole life was marked by humility. You're thinking about his birth. He wasn't born in an influential city like Alexandria or Rome or Athens or Jerusalem. Jesus was born near a feeding trough in Bethlehem. He lived 30 years in relative obscurity. Then in his earthly ministry, he was known for loving unlovable people and humbly serving others. And then at his death, he's nailed alongside two criminals. But it says here that Christ voluntarily humbled himself. Did you see that? He humbled himself. Do you see that? What that tells me is that Herod, Pilate, or Romans humbled Jesus. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Nobody can humble Jesus. Jesus will humble everybody, but nobody can humble him. He chose to humble himself. Therefore, don't look at this passage and feel sorry for Jesus as if he's to be pitied. Jesus stands over us. We don't stand over Jesus. He humbled himself, and now we must humble ourselves before him. In other words, you and I must choose humility. In the New Testament, the act of humbling ourselves is always in the active. In other words, I shouldn't wait till something humbles me. I should take the opportunity to humble myself now before God humbles me. That's the way of the kingdom. But the Bible says, to what extent did he further humble himself? Well, it says he even went deeper. Not only just become a man, but he became what? A servant man. What kind of man did he become? Just a man who was just recognized as a mere man, even though he was God. That's humility. But, but how else did he humble himself? Well, he, he died. But what kind of death? In humility, the death of a cross. Paul adds that he demonstrated his humility by becoming obedient to the point of death. And that death that he died was the most vilest of all because it was crucifixion. That serves as a rock bottom example of Christ's humility. You see, Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. Jews believed a person was cursed if he died by crucifixion. For Paul, some say the cross was a total embarrassment. Paul goes on to say that some people live as enemies of the cross, yet here is Jesus, the preexistent one, the Lord of glory, dying on a cross for sinners. He endured the physical agony of the cross, the abandonment, the shame, and received the wrath of God in the place of sinners. That's how he humbled himself. And it's quite certain, again, sure, that the Isaiah 53 continues to pop up here because Isaiah says, having no impressive form or majesty that we look on him or appears that we should desire him, that the Lord has put, punished him for the iniquity of us all. He submitted himself to death. In other words, Peter says it differently than Isaiah. It says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness and you have been healed by his wounds. You see, Jesus' humble mindset was it took him to a cross to die for you and me. You know this stuff. He emptied himself for you and for me. He came as a man for you and me. He served for you and for me. And the question is, is that become so commonplace that we no longer want to apply that in life that we live here in church? You see, if I go to Nigeria, I'm told that at the border, the Nigerian immigration officials will check to make sure that you've been inoculated against yellow fever. Because they understand the yellow fever still takes out a bunch of people. Well, this week as I was studying through that, I learned where the vaccine for yellow fever comes from. I'm not trying to impress you. I just think this is kind of cool. But in 1927, a man by the name of Asibi, he was a West African native, came down with yellow fever. But unlike everybody else, he didn't die because his system had somehow conquered the disease. You see, Asibi's blood contained the antibodies which the doctors used to develop a successful vaccine. And that vaccine has saved untold numbers of people around the world. But the interesting thing is, is each dose of the vaccine can be traced back to Asibi's original blood sample. In other words, one man's blood has saved the lives of millions of people. And in a mysterious way that we can't understand, that's exactly what the blood of Jesus did for us. His blood saves the lives of untold millions of people. Jesus' blood is the perfect vaccine against the disease called sin. Because 1 John says the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus died on a cross, even the death of a cross, that you and I might be forgiven. So two things here. One, have you ever truly given your life and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, it's, it's no more complicated than that. It's no more simple than that. But have you ever truly been saved by placing your faith in what Jesus did on the cross? His body given for you as a perfect human and his blood given to you as perfect God. Have you ever trusted that? Because Jesus died for you. He loves you. Secondly, can you and I die to ourselves for the sake of others? So I can walk with Christ in humility, but I have to do it when I look at his selfless denial, his selfless duality, and his selfless death. I can have the mindset of Jesus when my mind is set on Jesus. So I wonder today as my band comes and we begin to think about singing a hymn of invitation to prepare our hearts for celebrating the Lord's Supper. I wonder if you'd think about it with me. Because here's what I know. If you're going to get along with others, and live in humility, you're going to find sometimes that you come at odds against one another from time to time. And it's in those moments when you come against one another, somebody has to die, somebody has to humble themselves. The tension comes in when we're too alive and too willing to kick and struggle for our own personal ideas. We must have the mindset of Jesus. Here's what I'm saying. If we aren't willing to learn to die to ourselves to empty ourselves of our rights and be willing to serve others, then listen, we shouldn't be surprised when we find death in our relationships. We shouldn't be surprised to find death in most anything. I remember reading about this week about a Russian scientist and a Czechoslovakian scientist. They spent their lives studying the grizzly bear. 
Each year they present, they went to their respective governments and said, hey, will you please allow us to go to Yellowstone to study the bears? Well, after years and years of asking, finally their requests were granted and they flew from New York. They flew into New York and then they flew on to Yellowstone. And they reported there to the ranger station and were told that it probably wasn't a good time to come because it was the grizzly mating season. And it was just going to be simply too dangerous to go out and study the grizzly bears. Well, they continued to plead and said, this is our only chance. We flew all this way. So finally the ranger relented. So the Russian and the Czech were given these portable phones and told to report in every day. Well, several days they called in and then obviously out of nowhere, nothing was heard from them for days. Well, the rangers began to mount a search party and found the camp completely ravaged where the, where the people were and no sign of the missing men. But they did see something eventually, and it was the sign of a male and a female bear. So they followed the trail, the, the male and the female bear, and they found the female first. And they decided they'd have to kill the female bear to find out if she'd eaten the scientists. Because if they didn't, they feared an international accident. So, so they killed the female bear and opened her stomach up. And what they found inside of her was the Russian. Well, one ranger turned to the other and he says, well, you know what that means? You know what that means, don't you? The other one responded, I sure do. Then that means the check is in the mail. Bad joke. Real bad joke. But think about it with me. If those scientists had just listened to reason and simply did not die to their own desires and just gave up their rights and just served one another, they might still be alive. Death happens when we don't die to ourselves. And I just wondered today, if the Lord has spoken to you, would there be a time maybe where you would want to respond to Him? There's an area of your life you just need to give over. You just need to come and humbly submit yourself to the Lord. I don't know really what you want to do, but I can tell you this. We can walk with Christ in humility, but it is hard to humble ourselves, isn't it? So for this invitation, we're going to do it just a little bit differently because of the nature of the invitation. In just a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Bible says that we should examine ourselves before we do so, because if we eat the Lord's Supper or drink the Lord's Supper in a a way that's unworthy, we drink death into ourselves. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to say that, listen to me, if you do this in an unworthy manner, that's the reason some of you have already died. It's a very serious thing. So I'm wondering right now in this room, and I'm going to keep asking it until Jesus comes back. Is there somebody in this room that you're at odds with? That you need to humble yourself and go make it right with them? Because if you don't, I'm telling you, it could be why you're experiencing the difficulties you're experiencing because we can't make the blood of Jesus something we just trample underfoot. In just a few moments, we're going to drink that Jesus Christ died for us. He humbled himself and died for us that we should be able to live for him. And I'm I'm challenging you to take this message. If there's somebody in this room, maybe you need to make a phone call right now. You need to send a text right now during this invitation to make things right with somebody else. 
let me go back and say this. You can begin the process of making things right. Sometimes it's a process. Somebody's got to go first. Maybe it's, uh, you know, like me, you had problems with your family. and Maybe you need to make a phone call, send a text. Hey, man, I, I'm willing to work on this thing. I'm realizing I need to die to me to put you first. Would you be willing for a conversation? Maybe some of you here, you're at odds with one another. You need to speak to one another. Maybe some of you are on the same road. Could be that a man and woman married together fought on the way to church. It happens in my family quite often. And I'm riding by myself. Imagine that. Just here to tell you guys, we can't continue to push this stuff off. We've got to come together. Humble ourselves. Die. So I wonder if you'd stand to your feet. We're going to sing about this name that's above every other name, and we're going to maybe respond. So I'm going to have my, my deacons and Justin and some others come down here to receive you, to pray with you. Maybe you want to pray with some other people here. Maybe you need to receive the Lord Jesus. I'm going to pray. You come. And then after that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. So Lord Jesus, in this place, I pray that we would humble ourselves, that you may exalt us, and then we would give all the glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.